It is. January 22nd, 2006, and we're discussing Lesson 12 of Epistle to the Hebrews. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for an opportunity to get together with people who love you, people who love your word, and Father, who uh, are uh, convinced that Yeshua is Messiah, and that he has come and has redeemed us, and Father, that he is coming again. We thank you that your word is sure, and this uh, lesson that we have been uh, studying, Father, and how how, uh, the relationship between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle, and how that relates to us as we uh, study the... Uh, the book of of the Hebrews Father we thank you that you have given it to us and given us an opportunity to examine it so that we can better understand what these uh, uh, what these passages referring to the high priesthood of Yeshua are speaking of I thank you in Yeshua's name Amen Barakut Adonai Hamvorach Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Mikoha Amim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Bless Adonai who is blessed Bless Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Um, lesson 12, we're... Uh, actually, I think I have a little verse up here first. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am Hashem. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am Hashem your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Hashem. Exodus 6, 6 8 which actually happened to be in our homework at the same time that it was the... the uh, normal uh, portion for this week, or actually for this next week, uh, starting today. Yeah, who, who would have known? And completely unplanned, but it relates very, very importantly into this, uh, what we looked at. Last week we looked at an overview of the high priest passages in the book of Hebrews, and in an effort to, to put them all together, we discovered there's lots of really wonderful quotes all by themselves in, the, in those passages, but there's a lot of text in those passages as well. And if all you ever do is remember those nice little quotes, you may miss some important things about it looking through the book of Hebrews and in those eight chapters the context and the length of these passages shows a complex argument that's being made and if you all you focus on is those nice little sound bites sometimes you can miss the overall argument that's being made as, as we've seen already and one of the things that we saw I think hope was of particular interest in our looking at Hebrews this in this perspective is that the high priesthood of Yeshua was not presented in opposition to the high priesthood of Aaron, but rather that it had a different origin, which was really important deal to him. The whole discussion on Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek, although he is a historical figure and he has a relationship to Messiah that we may or may not be able to determine, I think we we can, but it's not an issue over arguing. But what's more important is his whole issue over Melchizedek, Melchizedek was in fact to establish that Yeshua that Yeshua's high priesthood had a different origin than the high priesthood of Aaron a different origin and he went so far as to say it has a different venue and we're going to look at that again as we move on in the next few weeks has a different venue in other words it has a different place that it operates okay this week, we did, some, we did some more study on the background of the high priest in the tabernacle system. It's a necessary background, and I realize the homework was pretty light. But it is a necessary background because it, uh, it helps us <laughs> get an overall view of what is going on in the temple system. So let's look at it. 
the need and the purpose for the tabernacle. This is review. Exodus 25, 8-9. And you've heard of inductive study. This last week was pretty much not even guided study. You know, read it. <laughs> Exodus 25, 8-9. Which says... Nope, I'm in the wrong place. Exodus 25, 8 9 says, And let them make me, this is, this is God himself speaking, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. But took them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, so you shall make it. We see this actually, this last part quoted in the book of Hebrews later on. So the, purpose, the purpose for the tabernacle was so that the Almighty could dwell among us. Okay? So he could dwell among us. Why couldn't he dwell among us without the tabernacle? It's dangerous. Yeah. Didn't he dwell with us in the garden? He walked with him in the cool of the evening. He dwelt with us in the garden. The garden was a it was a place of communion and meeting, right? Ah, something changed in the garden. Man sinned. We sinned and no longer could we dwell with him. Well, no longer could we dwell with him without there being danger. What's the danger? You might eat from the tree of life. That's part of it. Remember, that tree of life is a real thing, but it's also, it's also you know, homiletically, or it's a picture also of but basically the presence of God, as we've seen already. So it's, it's, there was a danger. We had to be guarded from eating from the tree of life. We had to be guarded from being in the presence of God. It's what we saw in chapter 4, the, the care beam and the, and the sword, you know, guarding the way to the tree of life. That sword can hurt you. Genesis 3, 21 through 24. How does that tabernacle compare to the garden? How does it? It's a meeting place, right? God certainly met Adam and Eve in the garden, walked with them, had conversation with them. That was similar. After the fall, how was it similar? Do you see the Do you see the Garden of Eden anymore? Is it visible? No. Where is it? Does it exist? But it's behind a veil, isn't it? It's invisible. It can't be seen. What's on the veil, or who guards the veil? Carabine, that's right. With a sword. Now we don't hear about, we don't read about the carabine having a sword in 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 the, on the tabernacle system. But carabine guard the way to the tree of life. They guard the way to, into the garden, keep man from it. In fact, that's what we see on the outside of the veil of the tabernacle. We see it again on the outside of the curtain of the tabernacle to enter the tabernacle. Even it's, we're supposed to make this connection. This is the way into the. This is the way back into the garden. I told you, legend, probably not a very good legend, but legend has it that the Garden of Eden was located where the Temple Mount is. Right? Well, it's not, it's not necessarily, it, it may be not a good legend, it may not be accurate as a legend. However, it's accurate on the basis of understanding what it was all about. Yes. That's exactly right. And it's accurate in its recognition of its prophetic significance. What did we see when we talked about this, this uh, tree of life being on either side of a river? And we compared it to, uh, uh, in Revelation, it talks about on either side of the river. And where's that river going to be flowing from? It says from the throne of God. And it actually describes it going through a split Mount of Olives. So this idea is, is there that this place, this tree of life in the presence of God, and so that there's this overlay of the temple and the garden, and certainly we would take that same overlay back to the tabernacle, which is the original uh, 
meeting place between, well, I shouldn't say the original, because the original man-made meeting place between God and his people. That's right. Isn't that, um, you know, we should be, we should always be intrigued by the significance of that. He's king of Salem. Salem's not Jerusalem yet, but that's the same place. Yeah. He's the king of righteousness. And we call, we call the gates around the city of Jerusalem, even in David's time, were called gates of righteousness. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, it, you know, the significance for us, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to stretch to make it up. You know, it's, it's scripture gives us these wonderful images right off the bat. So yes, it does compare it to the Garden of Eden. Exodus 40:34. Did it work? Did this tabernacle work in its purpose so that God could dwell among men? Yes, it worked to a degree. It says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses built it just like God told him to. He constructed its furnishings just like God told him to. He anointed the priests, Aaron and his sons, just like God told him to. He puts it up just like God told him to. And the presence of God fills it. And immediately we see the problem is that its presence could not be ultimately realized, or its, its goal could not be ultimately realized, because although he could fill it, man couldn't enter it. There was a problem. And we, as we've discussed and looked at already, the problem is there needs to be a way for man to get in there now. Up until this point, God did not have a place or rather we should say that we didn't have a place where God would come to meet with us, right? Man-made anyway. Some place we could say that's the place, let's go there. And now the problem is that although God has filled it, we cannot approach Him. We're going to look at that in the next few weeks. Well, how is it that we can approach Him? We know right off the bat, we need a sacrifice because the sin problem still has not been dealt with. You know? So here he is, but we still can't approach him. So it's the same problem as, as going back to the garden. You can't get past that sword. You, we've got to have a way past the sword. Got to have a way past the sword. And the sacrifices are a way past. Okay? In the temporal, in the here and now, as we know, the sacrifice of Yeshua ultimately is the only way past the sword into the actual presence of the living God for eternity. But there's a previous look, and that's where we spent some of your homework time. There's a previous look. What is this tabernacle? It's man-made. What is it a picture of? It's a picture of something in heaven, right? We're given a glimpse of that as well in the picture of Sinai. Go to Exodus 19.18. I had you actually read the entire passage. This is before the ten words are spoken, what people call the Ten Commandments. This is before that. This is before the sin of the golden calf. They've been redeemed out of Egypt. They've been taken through the Red Sea. They are his people. Do you, do you remember the purpose for which they were redeemed? God says it outright. What, would, what purpose were they redeemed for? Go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go so, so that they can serve me. They were, by, by God's design, they were redeemed in order to be his servants. They were redeemed in order to be his people. He redeemed it. He purchased them. They were his. He brings them across the wilderness. He brings them to this place. And then this mountain. And then uh, we see this series of events here as you studied in chapter 19. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 18 says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. That sounds a lot like Exodus 40, where Moses is driven from the tabernacle because the presence of God is so overwhelming. Okay? Same thing. God comes down on this mountain and his presence is overwhelming. 
19, verse 2 through 5. Actually, start up in in verse 1. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from uh, Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, excuse me, to the house of the children, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. He's basically saying, I bought you, I own you, I brought you here for me. Right? They were a redeemed people. What kind of redeemed people? We've seen this already earlier in chapter 4 of Hebrews. What kind of redeemed people? Eternally redeemed? Not necessarily. What have we seen? They were redeemed from the hand of a wicked king, Pharaoh. They were redeemed from slavery. They were saved from annihilation there at the Red Sea. They were saved from starvation as they walked across the wilderness he had provided for them. So they were redeemed in the sense that he kept his promise to bring them out and now they were at the mountain. They were redeemed, however. They were, maybe not in the sense that we talk about eternally redeemed, but they were his people. He owned them. He had purchased them. The idea of redemption is like to pay a, to pay a price, a, uh, a, uh, a ransom, as it were. He had purchased them. They were his people. He brought them to his place. He says, I brought you to myself. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Valerie talked about this last week. The idea that they were all supposed to be priests. You know, what's this ironic priesthood nonsense? Right? They're all supposed to be priests. And we learned that the origin, and we talked about the origin of the Aaronic priesthood, came from after the sin of the golden calf. And Levi stood with Moses. The tribe of Levi stood with Moses and said, We will stand on God's side. And uh, we see that, in fact, it's Aaron who participated in the sin of the golden calf. It's Aaron to whom God promises this eternal priesthood. It's amazing. It's amazing. One, one, one way of looking at it, I suppose, is you keep those closest to you. It's like, it's like children. You know, the children that are the worst misbehaviors you may keep closest to you. Levi, as a tribe, descending from, Levi, descending from Levi, you know, the son of, of Jacob, who has such a sharp temper, who him and Shimon, Simeon, went into Shechem and killed every male because they had, uh, because the prince of Shechem had raped their sister uh, Dina. Le- Levi's a, he's a sharp-tempered man. And he has a tribe that surely follows right in his... So, God keeps them close by. <laughs> You'll serve me right here. <laughs> as it were, keeping an eye on them. And Aaron as well, who participated in the sin of the world. But they were all supposed to be priests. That's exactly what he says in the beginning when he says, Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Excuse me, I'm paraphrasing. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go so they can serve me. How? As a kingdom of priests. This is what Peter quotes in 1 Peter. We, as God's people, are a special treasure. A kingdom of priests. That's his intention. Redemption's intention is to prepare a people to serve him. Verses 6 through 9. This is, this, is, this is good stuff. I love this. 
Because they immediately, the fearfulness of these people is driven out, or at least they overcome their fearfulness because they say, he says, And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called to the elders of the people, laid before them all the words with the Lord, which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and say, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back words of the people to the Lord. You'll notice this is in chapter 19. The Lord has not spoken any commands other than chapter 16 telling them about uh, keeping the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath as a, as a time of rest. Other than that, he hasn't given them any commands. So what have these people agreed to? They've agreed to follow the one who redeemed them. That's good enough, right? That's not a bad, by the way, that's not a bad thing they said. That's exactly the right response. Their inability and their failure that follows this should not negate their correct response. It is exactly the thing to say. We agree. And then he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when, you, when I speak to you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the, uh, told the words of the people to the Lord. Verses 10 through 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, which is always a key phrase in Scripture, on the third day the Lord will come down upon the mountain in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself, that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. They agreed. God says, tell Moses, go back and tell the people to prepare. Wash. Okay? Don't touch the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. He wants them clean. These are very similar instructions that you're going to read that have to do with the tabernacle and the temple later on. Exactly. What kind of clean? Morally clean? Is that the issue here? It is not. Tells them to go and wash their clothes. Physically clean. Keep it in mind. Keep this picture in mind as we go into into later on in this book where he talks about how blood can cleanse the flesh. He's talking about physically, there's something physically offensive or dangerous for people who had not somehow prepared physically for being in the presence of God. Don't let it throw you off. Understand that we are talking about we are talking about also a picture of something. Okay, the physical verses for in conjunction with the spiritual. But right now we're just talking about they were not. It's not a matter of being morally pure. It's a matter of being pure on the outside. Fourteen through twenty. Look at this. This is interesting. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, "Do be ready the third day. Do not come near your wives." Which is actually an instruction that would additionally be with the tabernacle and later on with the temple. When it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended from the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
what we see here is, actually, continuing on verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through and gaze at the Lord. And many of them perished. So the priests who came near the Lord consecrated themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up upon the mount, up, up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down. Then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. What we're seeing is we're seeing actually a picture of what's going to be replayed again and again and again in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It's a, it's a picture of ever-increasing precincts of holiness or things set aside for God. You could come so far, provided you had prepared yourself physically and then spiritually, then only the priests could continue further. And finally, only the high priest could continue and then only once a year, as we're going to look at when we look at Yom Kippur in a few weeks. So we see this ever-increasing levels of holiness surrounding the tabernacle, just like we did with Mount Sinai. This ever-increasing levels of holiness. And the reason why is God is dangerous. He's dangerous. So I asked a question, uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, and maybe it was last week. If a believer living in the first century had said, Listen, Yeshua is my sacrifice. I can go boldly into the throne of grace. Had dared, had snuck past, and no man had touched him into the Holy of Holies, what would have happened to him? There's no doubt in my mind he would have been struck dead. Not because he has no, because he's cursed and would not spend eternity with, with, with the Lord, but because, he, because God is dangerous, physically dangerous. It's not, just a, it's not just a concept. It's not just a, okay, let's follow the rules because we know what it's supposed to all point to, you know. No, it was real. God was protecting them from His presence which would consume them if they were not, in fact, prepared correctly. Moses was driven from the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus because God is dangerous even to his friend Moses. There has to be. There ha- there's no excuses. There's no way around it. There has to be a way to physically prepare oneself and to be atoned for in some way so that the issue of sin is dealt with. We know that eternally that's certainly true. There's no way that one can spend eternity with God without sin having been dealt with. None. It can't happen. It's the same thing in the physical realm. That's the point of the protocols. And there are protocols. Like Sinai, the tabernacle had protocols. They had to be followed for the people to be safe. It was for their benefit that they had to be followed. And just like the Sinai was dangerous, the tabernacle was a dangerous place. Thrill seekers would want to go to the tabernacle. It was a dangerous place. Certainly, that kind of thrill, you know, to be the presence of God would not be something that the cavalier would approach. They had no care about that. People who would be thrill seekers today would have no interest in spending, uh, in approaching God. But the point is, it was a thrilling experience. Not just because of its danger, and not because of its danger, but because God himself made it a thrilling experience. People say, you know, I, mean, I don't know that it, it, that would really affect me or what, you know. I mean, after all, God is with me now. You know, and I feel his presence. And, I, and I, it, it, there's no question. And we get together. We get together. We worship God. You know, do we not feel something? Of course we do. Absolutely. Well, if you can take that and understand that that's the idea behind it, then you can understand something of going into the tabernacle and later into the temple. All right, we looked at this idea of salvation, temporal and eternal. 
Why did we do it now? What's the relationship to this? What's the relationship to this whole Sinai tabernacle setup? Salvation. What does salvation have to do with this? Why is this an important understanding for us? Salvation is not necessarily eternal every time it's used, the word salvation. Let me ask you this. When the book of Hebrews is read, as some have asked us to read it, as a polemic against the temple system, as a negative against the temple system, tabernacle system, what... What is, its, what is the point of that? It's oftentimes confused, but oftentimes the idea is that was the way people got saved then. Now we get saved this way. What kind of saved? Eternally? You need to understand, that's exactly the way that most people look at the passages that we're reading from the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as if there's some sort of eternal salvation being discussed. There's only hints at it. Do you understand that the Sadducees, although they were in error, had an understanding when they read the scriptures and go, we're looking for this thing called eternal life and we don't see it. Now, I'm not saying that it's not to be seen. Yeshua pointed out quite plainly that it's there and to be seen. But there isn't anything explicit in the way that it calls it, is it? Where was the guarantee of the spending eternity with God in all of these discussions? There's none. What was it about? It was about here and now, first and foremost, in the presentation of what God was telling them. Did that point to something yet future, yet, yet out there as far as eternity? No question about it. We know that. We can see those pictures. Our mistake would be to assume because there is an eternal concept of salvation being hinted at in these that all of the discussions of salvation and all the discussions around the temple and all the discussions of atonement have to do with eternal salvation they do not how does a Jew in uh, in Moses day get eternally saved yeah but then you believe in eternal salvation well, some may or may not have, but... That's how he thought of it. How did he really get saved? I mean, really, biblically, how did someone get eternally redeemed living in that day? That's right. Believe God. That's it. And yes, we understand ultimately it was in fact a faith in Messiah, even though they didn't necessarily have to voice it and understand that. That's what we're going to study when we get to chapter 11 of this book. That's exactly the point. He names all these people and not a single one of them lived after Yeshua. They all lived before him. Why is he naming them? He's saying, listen, the same way that they were faithful and can in fact see a citizenship in a, in a city that's, that's not yet seen, you must remain faithful. There's no difference in salvation. Eternal salvation is the same. It doesn't really matter which side of the cross, as people would call it, you find yourself in. God is the object of our faith. What he says is true. God says, put your trust in Yeshua. And his sacrifice is the ultimate sacrifice. And you will be saved. And he's speaking of eternally. But before that, what did people do? They did the same thing. Maybe not in those expressed terms. Because we have more detail. The point here is though, the salvation being presented here, as you've looked at, is first and foremost, in their minds, presented as temple. With the idea that there may be something more involved in all of this. Our approach is in looking back is to apply that same eternal salvation concept and make sure the whole thing, the whole temple system is about getting eternally saved. And it's absolute nonsense. There's no correlation in scripture to that. There's no, there's no even reference to it. He doesn't promise it. Listen, if you have a sin, you make sure you come and confess it before the priest and bring your sin sacrifice and I'll forgive you forever. 
No. If you lived up in Galilee and you had a sin and you didn't want to go to the temple, it didn't matter. Now it mattered that you sinned, but God wasn't saying, hey listen, you need to go and confess it to the priest. You know? That's, that's, that's a Catholic invention. That is not a biblical thing. Nobody said go tell the priest. Nobody said go take a sacrifice when you sinned. No. If you want to go to the temple and you have, and you have sin, everybody has, you must take a sacrifice or you can't get into the presence of God because it's dangerous. But if you didn't go to the temple, you didn't need to take one. Otherwise, everybody would be saving up a whole back lot in the back lot all the time, right? Oh, there did another one. Better save one. The next week, I may be going to Jerusalem, and I've got to take me some sacrifices, because I've got a whole pile of sins I've got to deal with. See how silly the whole thought of it is? No, never, never, never. We're going to look at it. We look at sacrifices. The vast majority of sacrifices were voluntary. Completely voluntary. Do it or don't do it. It's up to you. Yashka, the word save, the root of Yeshua's own name. It's first used, and it is the verb, the verb, Yasha, is to save something. First used in Exodus 2.17. This is where Moses helps Zipporah and her sisters. They're getting harassed at the well. Moses comes up and saves them. He says helps them. Saves them. That's the first usage. What is it? It is someone who is acting on the behalf of someone else, which establishes a relationship. What was the result of that saving them? He gets married. That's exactly right. He, they go right back to their daddy and say, hey, this Moses guy is great. And he, you know, it's like, hey, there's a way that I can get my eldest you know, daughter and you married. Let's, let's do that. I like his response. Why should leave him out there? <laughs> go get him. Go get him. <laughs> It's actually really, you know, that, that it's got all sorts of errors in it, but the, the cartoon Prince of Egypt, the, the, was it DreamWorks? Whoever did that, I don't know, 10 years ago. Really great. And that very thing is, you know, uh, you know, Jethro is just marvelous, you know, just, you know, he's the, he's the Bedouin and happy-go-lucky guy and he's like, you know, just immediately embraces Moses as, as, as this friend of his family. And that's exactly right. But it established the relationship. Goodness. And the second usage in Exodus 14.30 is where God acts on behalf of Israel. They're at the Red Sea. He saves them. And it says he saves them. How did he save them? He actually took them out of the threat of death that Pharaoh's army had upon them. Pressed between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. He saved them. How did he save them? He opened up the Red Sea. They walked through it. What did he do? He established a relationship with them in that regard. He becomes their savior. Right? He saved them. Therefore, he becomes their savior. In Numbers uh, 10, uh, 9 and Deuteronomy 24, 4, we see this is... This is basically God's instructions to these to these uh, to the Israelites that He's going to save them from their enemies. Okay. Now think about. Remember, I asked you this question. What's what's the what's the pressing issue? Why do we want God? Why do we want this tabernacle in the middle of our camp? God's presence in the middle of our camp. Why do we want that? Wait. We understand we can go into his presence following the proper protocol. We can meet with him. Okay? It's an experiential thing. Certainly throughout at least three times a year, we're going we're to get all to get together in his presence. Alright? But there's something else as well. And we see that the Israelites get an idea behind this and they misuse it. They start taking the ark. When, you, when they go into the land, they start taking the ark into, into battle with them. Why? God saves us. His presence is a guarantee that we won't be annihilated by our enemies. How does he save us? He saves us. Physically saves His presence is a really good thing to keep us safe. What a great picture for us! I mean, I love it. You know, and in the in the uh, in the in the Amidah, in the in the uh, in the standing prayer, uh, pray three times daily. There is there the first the first benediction is in fact to thank God because He is shield of Abraham 
He's God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's called Magan Avraham, shield of Abraham. That's, that's great. What a great thing that we should look to God as our shield and our defender. That's exactly what a Savior does. He defends you. It's a great thing. This tabernacle is a great thing. It's in the middle of the camp. He's protecting them. Saved by. Saved by someone. Saved from something. An enemy. Saved for something. A relationship, right? And they continue to be saved. He says, look, you know, as, as you go and I'm going to continue to defend you. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. I will save you from your enemies. And he uses this. And look, we're all the way up to Deuteronomy uh, 24. You know? Certainly over 40 years later, he's still saving them. Okay? Certainly we read in the book of Joshua. He's saving. He's still saving them. He's keeping them safe from their enemies. Right? But these are temporal usages. Physically does it allude to something spiritually? Without question. And, and David in the Psalms uses it a lot. He uses it first as a temporal picture. And then he starts using it homiletically, you know, as a picture of something, of an eternal salvation. But he first uses it as so that he can get a grasp, so he can wrap his mind around how it is that God is a Savior. God saves me. He uses it as, as a man would who's, who's in a struggle, a physical struggle. We, we tend to take the opposite approach. We tend to take the opposite approach. We, we, we're talking about concept of salvation as eternal. We have difficulty applying it you know, to our present day circumstances. Because we understand sometimes we still get hurt. So God didn't save me? Right? It's a difficult theological question for us. It's much easier to say, well, you know, but ultimately always saves me. Right? True. They don't. Sometimes they say help. Sometimes they say shield. It just depends on sort of the context how they translate. It is. But if you look in uh, Strong's, it's kind of a word. It's in the South, yeah. It, I'm a little. Dis- I'm, I, I was like you. Know, I was reading these this week. I was like, I was a little bit. I was a little bit upset. You know, because like, come on, man, just say what it is. I mean, don't don't make a theological decision here. It's just the word is saved. Put it in there. See, he saved them. <laughs> you know, salvation. You know, I, I love the word salvation. Why why do we have to hide it behind other words? You know, and they do actually in, in the first usage they do a good job because they use it in 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 uh, um, in Genesis. Uh, 49 is salvation. It is salvation. And Yeshua has an H on the end. It's the noun for the, for the proper name, Yeshua. So his name is used there with the H on the end. just makes it the noun variation. But it means the same thing, salvation. It doesn't mean God saves. It means just salvation. He is salvation. Uh, Genesis 49.18 is the first usage of the noun, Yeshua. Let me read it real quickly because I want to read a, I want to read a commentary on it uh, and then and then uh, then we'll finish up. Genesis forty nine eighteen is a prophetic passage. This is where Jacob is saying his blessings over his sons, and he's gone through and he's and he's he's expressed his blessing over many, uh, particularly and and a very famously over Judah. And, and the fact that Judah is going to be the, the tribe of the scepter. The tribe of the future kingship and messiahship. But in verse 18, he's speaking of Dan. And this is what he says. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. This is, you know, we read this and we go, wow, that's interesting. What's it mean? It's prophetic. What's it mean? The ancient rabbis read this and they go, he's speaking of Messiah. <laughs> we, we might be shocked to think, well, we know he's always speaking about Messiah. They go, no, he's speaking about Messiah. This is what it says in, uh, this is in Genesis Rabbah, uh, 94, uh, 18. Our ancestor Jacob saw him 
speaking of Samson here, saw Samson and thought that redemption, that he's Messiah, because he comes from Dan, would come in his days. And when he saw him dead, Samson dead, he immediately exclaimed, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. In other words, what they're saying here is, Jacob saw and thought that from Dan, Samson would come. Samson's a great deliverer. He's He's Messiah. He's Messiah. But then when he was killed, he saw he was killed. He said, no, he can't be Messiah. There must be a yet Messiah coming. In fact, there's this long discourse on how Messiah is still coming. And in fact, as the rabbis are writing this, yes, he's still coming. Uh, uh, And certainly as the rabbis were writing this, he had already come. But the point is, this is a messianic verse. Immediately, we understand the noun Yeshua in its first usage points to the person, Yeshua, with the proper name. And what does it point to? It points to Samson. A, he, he says Samson, a physical salvation. But no, it can't be just physical because he's killed. It must be an ultimate salvation. It must be somehow physical and eternal. So it can't be pointing to Samson. This is about Messiah. And it's not just physical, it's eternal. That's pretty cool. I think it's cool. So all the talk about the people in Yeshua's day and how they were looking for a national redeemer to be freed from Rome and how true that is. But to misunderstand that although that's true, they were also looking for the ultimate, what they call even today, the final redemption. When they speak of that, they refer to the establishment of a messianic kingdom, an eternal dwelling with God. That's exactly what they're referring to when they say the final redemption. Exodus 14.13 This is exactly, this this is uh, from Exodus 14.30. This is the Red Sea. Stand and watch the salvation of God. What was salvation from? From Pharaoh. By who? By God. For what purpose? To fulfill his promise that he was going to take them out of Pharaoh's hand so that they would be his servants, right? And was it temporal? Yes. He saved them physically from that disaster. Was there an eternal reference in that somehow? It's alluded to. It's hinted at. We read in Romans 11, so all Israel would be saved. So we see that there's some sort of eternal salvation involved in all these pictures. But remember, first and foremost, in, as it's being written of in these first three, few verses, it's talking about a temporal salvation. Go to Psalms 3, 2. David does such a great job, as we talked about, in overlaying and using the physical salvation as homiletically pointing to, figuratively pointing to, an eternal salvation. Psalms 32, or excuse me, Psalms 3, verse 2 to start with, and then verse 8. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. That is the word salvation. There is no salvation for him in God. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Blessing is upon your people. What kind of salvation? Every kind of salvation. Exodus 3, 18 and 6, 6 through 8. goes back to the four I wills. Because I'm going to take you out of this bondage. I'm going to take you to the land that I promised to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will do it. I will. I will. I will. I will. Are they... Temporal? Is that temporal salvation? Yes. He redeemed them temporally. Was it speaking of a, an eternal salvation as well? In a way. Pointing to it at least. Okay? Remember we saw that? There were, you know, it's, uh, it's been several weeks and I, I, don't have, I don't have a printer right here, but it, basically there was talking about the... Uh, what generation does not have a part in the world to come? This is from the Talmud. And they say, the generation that was in the wilderness does not have a part in the world to come. In other words, they stood at the threshold of the, of the promised land and they disobeyed God and God forever is never going to allow them in, into the 
world to come, you know, into, into uh, the ultimate promised land, right? Um, now, whether that's true or not is really not, not, not important to me, but the idea that they were already making this connection to this salvation, this temporal salvation being redeemed from Egypt, that it had some sort of eternal picture with it as well, okay? Isn't that what the book of Hebrews does? In reverse. You say, listen, you've come to understand what this all means eternally. Don't misunderstand that just because it's, uh, that's true, that, that this valuable resource that you have in, in the temple, the physical temple, if you get if you lose it, if you get kicked out, if, you, if you're denied access, that's not good, but wow, you got the best already, right? You've already got the best. It's, you've got, you may not have a physical salvation right now. You're being persecuted. But you've got an eternal salvation, don't you? you know, and this, this reminder to us almost seems foreign. Because we are so used to always treating salvation as an eternal issue. That, that in fact, sometimes we're maybe a little bit angry when, it, when the physical doesn't work out the same, aren't we? People get sick. They don't get well. Loved ones don't get well. Hardship. People mistreat us. No. We're treated wrongfully. We're accused of things that we didn't do. <laughs> That's, that's the temporal salvation. You know. Well, you know, that's the encouragement. Remember, it's the same encouragement given to them. Listen. God saves eternally. And you have Him as a high priest. Yeshua is your high priest. If these things that are temporal don't work out like you think, rest assured that you have Him. You have the most important if we're given contrasts between the physical and the, and the spiritual, whenever the twain shall meet, the argument immediately falls down. What kind of encouragement is that to me at all? This doesn't matter. Well, pie in the sky by and by. I just hope to hurry up and get out of this place. That's not the attitude that you should have. It's not the attitude his apostles had. Paul said to die is gain. But in no way did he say, get me out of this place. Instead he says, no, no, I find it good to stay here. For your sake. Right? He felt like his task was a good task. Serving the master, whether it be this side of death or the other side of death, is the same in that regard, isn't it? As an encouragement, it must be a comparison. If it's going to encourage them, it must be a comparison. They should be able to see the, the, the things that are the same in the argument. Not to see disparate, opposites. So salvation, if you consider it to be eternal, think about the eternal aspects. Now, hopefully it would be nice if you, if you experience the physical, but don't, don't be discouraged because the eternal aspects are more important, are more valuable. Right? Because Israel had been saved by God in order to have a relationship with Him, in service to them, God brought them to Sinai to meet with Him. They had been saved from the bondage of Egypt, homiletically, as a picture we can see that and say we've been saved from the bondage of sin. Why? So that we can be brought to meet with Him and have a relationship with Him and in that relationship to serve Him because He's worthy of being served. But God did it all. I mean, what did they do? I mean, they didn't do anything. <laughs> right? He even told them ahead of time, listen, how hard is this? Take the lamb, put the blood over the doorpost, you'll be safe. And I'm taking you out with strong arm. 
with an outstretched arm. I'll redeem you. Stand and see. They're standing at the Red Sea. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. And what did they have to do? Nah, Sean jumps in. <laughs> Not be afraid. That's right. That's right. But even Nachshon didn't divide the water. God divided the water. Right? God desired a nation that would relate to him so that he could dwell among them. It's not enough to say God saved me except to say that I am one of those. I mean, it is good that God saved me. That's all I can relate to is me, right? But the point is, I'm part of a group. He wants a people. He wants a people that will serve him. So we're one of many that he's redeemed. Because he wants a people to relate to. It's not just, a, it's not just an individual. The problem is the nation could not approach him. Right? Did people approach him? Abraham talked to him. Moses talked to him in the burning bush. That's, you know, that's great. Wonderful. The problem is we have to have a way for the nation to relate to him. The people have to have a way to relate to him. He wants to dwell not just next to a guy named Abraham. He wants to dwell among his people, all of them. So, this is a wonderful idea. The problem is it needs certain protocols. If you follow the rules, it can work. But if you don't follow the rules, it won't. Israel alternates between following the rules and not. It is hard. It is hard. God's gracious, though, because he understands our weakness. Look at the golden calf incident. is a perfect example. What's the immediate response? You need a tabernacle. <laughs> Let's build a tabernacle. Uh, it's, like, it's, like the, it's like the man who, in numbers, breaks the Sabbath. What's the immediate response? You need a string to remember. Okay? Tie a string around your finger. Well, he says put strings on the corners of your garments to remember. You know, I know, maybe it's hard to forget. Don't work on the Sabbath, but I'll remind you. Here, here you go. This is the way you can remember. Right? He's a gracious God. He does help us with our... But what you need to understand is that God is dangerous physically. And because he is physically dangerous, we have to somehow have a physical sanctification or setting apart or cleansing in order to meet with him physically. In this body, in this venue, in this dimension, if you want to think of it in a scientific sense. Comments? Questions? One thing came to mind as you were asking about, say, temporal and eternal. I couldn't help but relate that question also to rest. Good. Hebrews that talks about they didn't enter the rest, but we to be diligent and 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 to be I love that kind of stuff, you know. But they're there for us to explore because in that exploration, we're that's exactly right. We saw that with rest, there were three levels. It's, uh, it's the entering the land, and then maybe it's the the, week, the weekly Sabbath, rather. Then it's the entering the land, and then lastly is the eternal rest. You know, the the uh, you know Olam Haba. It's the world to come. Yeah. Let's close. Father, we thank you that you have saved us. And it's not just a salvation that we can be free from our enemies and, or free from sickness, uh, free from uh, sadness. All these things would be wonderful and good. And we thank you for them when you give them to us. But Father, our greatest gratitude goes to the salvation that you wrought at Golgotha, Father, that you uh, redeemed us with the perfect blood of Messiah and that it was satisfying to you and you raised him from the dead as proof that the sacrifice was sufficient, complete, and could not be added to. Father, we thank you for this salvation that we can approach you uh, first in prayer 
And Father, one day in your kingdom, we thank you for that. We ask that you might give us understanding of your word, that we might be able to place these layers of of understanding of both the physical and spiritual in the correct perspective, not holding one above the other in so far as uh, in, in any way other than the way that you reveal it, we pray. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Emet Mechai Olam Natafetochenu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen.